Welcome, I'm Ryan Hicks, and this is Modern Business, the podcast to learn from franchise business leaders and explore new business technology. Our community is about sharing knowledge and tools that help us achieve our goals in business and beyond. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Modern Business. This episode is sponsored by Citron Cooperman, a national CPA practice offering the guidance and insight needed by franchisors and multi-unit franchisees to prepare for mergers and acquisitions, growth and expansion. They minimize uncertainty, meet financial statement, audit, tax and other compliance and contractual obligations, and help their clients stay focused on building their businesses. Citron Cooperman has prided themselves on working with the owners, operators, controllers, and CFOs of franchise organizations across all sectors for over 40 years and counting. To get in touch with Michael and Aaron from the team, find their profile on FranchiseSuppliersNetwork.com today or check the show notes as always. That's FranchiseSuppliersNetwork.com and check the show notes. Cheers. Hey, welcome back. This is Modern Business Podcast, the podcast for franchise entrepreneurs and franchise entrepreneurs. If you have been following along the podcast, you may have heard a thing or two about Springboard. Uh, We just hosted that conference last week. Uh, I will say that it was a phenomenal event. The franchise family is alive and very well. Uh, We tackled a lot of the, the current hot topics and hot points in today's environment. We had, I think it was over 90 industry professionals, maybe maybe more, maybe a little bit less, um, but we had over 90 in- industry professionals sharing best practices and doing what the franchise community does. And so today we have a special treat in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, we're gonna we're gonna recap and just talk a little bit about some of the top takeaways from one of the sessions on accelerating growth through third-party capital. Uh, This was a lunch session. John Tezza, the highly esteemed uh, past chair of Springboard, was actually the moderator of that. And we had some other really great panelists. Um, But I'm especially excited because we have yet to have the honor to have today's guests on the podcast. And many of you in the audience will uh, know the firm and know this gentleman and, and the great things that they've been up to. Um, so just by way of introduction, we have Jim Waskovich. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Princeton Equity Group. And if I was doing the live podcast, I would hit the little drum roll because we also have Lane Fisher. He's the co-founder of uh, Springboard. I don't know if that's even the proper terminology, but he started Springboard with Brad Fishman a decade ago. This was the 10th Springboard event. Uh, he also... Uh, as a lot of the audience knows, created the what, what's called the unconferences. There's unconference in Park City coming up in March of next year. I think that announcement on the date's coming soon. Um, but Lane's a par- partner at Fisher Zucker. He's actually never been on the podcast, which blows my mind. I just realized that this morning. Um, Fisher Zucker's a full-service law firm. If uh, We have a lot of folks in the audience that listen to the podcast uh, who are interested in franchising their business. We have a lot of folks listening to the podcast that are interested in becoming franchisees it's, as it's just a, a kind of a franchise community podcast. Um, but Fisher Zucker, because Lane uh, probably won't get into too much detail about the firm, but they they can help with everything from uh, franchising your business, FTD filings. They do that for tons and tons of brands, um, but it's full service law firm. So anything from transactions, litigation, arbitration, mediation, trademarking, um, regulatory compliance, copyright licensing, all things needed, full-service franchise uh, law firm. And so, Lane, that's that's the plug for you. But, gentlemen, Jim and Lane, welcome to Modern Business Podcast, guys. Uh, thanks Thank for you. having us, Ryan. Appreciate it. It's, that was a great intro, Ryan. <laughs> Feel free to continue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hopefully not too long-winded. Um, just to jump straight into to the content, uh, Jim, a lot of folks – know who you are. And then a lot of folks in the audience, this may be the first time that that they're getting to meet you. So would love to have you just share uh, kind of a brief background on yourself and your franchise journey thus far. You can give us a cliff note on prior to franchising, but just catch us up to speed on uh, on yourself and maybe a, a, a highlight of a couple of the, or some of the portfolio that you guys have at Princeton Equity. Yeah, Ryan, ha- happy to. Um... 
So I'm the uh, co-founder and managing partner of Princeton Equity Group. Um, we are a private equity fund here in Princeton, New Jersey and, and Dallas, Texas. Um, we're a little unique in that all we do is franchising. Um, over the years, uh, my partner, Doug Keneally, and I have invested in uh, over 25 franchisors. Um, it's a body of work we're really proud of. Um, brands like Massage Envy, European Wax Center, Sola Salon Studios, Urban Air, Strickland Brothers, Ellie Mental Health, uh, Five Star Franchising, uh, many others. Um, and um, we love this industry. Uh, we've been in it now for over 13 years. We've been lucky enough to be around some great successes. And we really focus our time working with founder-owned franchisors. That's the focus. Uh, we, uh, we call it growth stage businesses. So typically our franchisor has generally at least 50 locations open, maybe up to 500, 600 at the, the, the higher end of the range. But that 50 to 150 or 250 is probably a sweet spot for us. Um, our founders have done a great job proving out the four walls, um, attracting the initial franchisees, um, but really want help taking their business to the next level. Uh, so that's that's our focus. And um, we, uh, we really have a lot of fun doing it. We have a 16-person team. Uh, again, maybe one of the largest teams in franchising, uh, certainly the largest in that growth franchise or vertical. And all we do every day is help our companies grow brands that ultimately, uh, hopefully, if we're successful, become household uh, names. Yeah, I think you guys have done a great job on that. And I'll just share, we we get to meet a lot of people. We host a lot of people on the podcast. And I'll just say behind closed doors, several of the deals that you had mentioned, I've heard nothing but great things from the founders that you guys work with. You have a really respected name and you mentioned your team, a super solid team as well, a big team. And, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me is on the panel, you know, just kind of the collaborative mindset that you guys bring a lot of the education. I think that you even help provide during the process. It was almost like you were advising, uh, you know, advising brands on, on how to get the best deal for themselves. And I think that's an awesome thing because, you know, from growth, growth partners, the goal is, is to collectively grow and create a win-win. Um, before I jump into the next topic, Lane, since you haven't had the opportunity to be on the podcast, I gave a quick blurb on Fisher Zucker. Any other background information on yourself for, uh, for the fo for the three people in the audience that don't know uh, who you are? <laughs> no, your you're, intro is very kind. I'm, I'm just finishing my second six-year term on the IFA Board of Directors and had the privilege of serving alongside a lot of Icons in franchising, and uh, but I think you did an amazing job, and and uh, that is exactly what we do, and the kind of services we offer to folks, and because we've been doing it a long time, I've been around almost thirty years. Um, you know, we know lots of people, and I think that you know it's um, you know in terms of who we represented or who we attract or who we bring to our programming. So I wanted to talk for a minute about Springboard, if that's okay. So yeah. Springboard, as you know, Brian, was an immense success. I think we had over 568 people registered, including 400 people registered as franchisors, which is sort of a testament to the, uh, you know, the trust folks have in us and to try to come back and send folks at the high, the people attending are at the highest level and and have all come back. Many of them uh, are the founders. <laughs> Jim and others have, have, uh, have made deals with or have uh, established relationships with. Um, I'm sure Jim won't tell the story, but in the in the early part of the summer, when I was trying to figure out sort of what what the emerging community wanted uh, and what they would appreciate in terms of programming, Jim was an amazing sounding board. I mean, he had talked to more founders than than I had, uh, and that anyone else I knew had, and I knew that he knew what the hot buttons were. And I was torturing him and some others in in how to get that transacting founders session together, and it was as you know, it was almost fully attended by the entire audience, uh, there were uh, 28 different roundtables, all with a founder who had entered into some sort of liquidity event paired with somebody on the buy side, like either Jim or an investment banker or a platform company. Um, and that combination of unrelated people created a, a huge uh, pocket of information and source of information in terms of uh, being able to chat through what people's individual 
issues are. Like it's one thing to even watch this or hear people talk about how successful they are. It's another thing entirely to figure out how to implement those uh, best practices in your own business. And I would say, well, not everyone is a candidate for sale or is looking to sell. Everyone, virtually everyone is a candidate for trying to maximize the value of their business. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, I mean, I guess to, to the world's credit, <laughs> the, the kinds of mistakes that people see, and Jim can speak more to this in terms of looking at companies, um, are not like, oh my God, I've never heard of this. It's like, oh my God, another person didn't keep the receipts from their FDDs or another person didn't, has a bunch of oral franchise agreements or has some other thing that we know is not is not a way we would have, have designed it. And I think the uh, people's, uh, Rocco always says, people's inability to live long enough to make every mistake on their own <laughs> requires them to learn from other people. But Springboard <laughs> has really been a, a place where people can at least prevent some foreseeable missteps in a process that they know more about than you. But it's um, it felt amazing to sit and watch that and to watch nobody in the hallway and nobody on their cell phones. And we had given that advice all throughout, but you just never know until you're, you know, you actually get there. Um, and then I think that it's compelling to have brands that are represented by these large companies and private equity firms on the ground describing their own experience because, um, not money's fungible, but terms are easily comparable, right? They're objective and you know when you're getting paid and if you want to co-invest and all those other things that are objective terms. But the quality of the partner and what your life might be like after is something that is not written in stone and there's not some measuring stick to say that there's a six versus a 10. You really can only learn about it through folks that, um, you know, everybody's reputation is formed by what they did in the last 15 minutes with the last most recent uh, participants. So I think that having folks on the ground that can describe the qualitative differences between partners and what they expect and what they didn't expect and what life is like is just a glimpse into a world that people have only read about. And they only read about it in the most cursory, you know, overarching, you know, the market's really active, but they don't really drill down and see what made companies worth more or what pushes somebody's button to say, I, I want that management, right? It's not just the company and the business model, it's the team executing it. Uh, Jim started, you know, was referring to it earlier, and that um, that may be the highest asset, right? That's better than even the profitability of the enterprises, the people running it that are able to replicate it over and over again. So I think that um, we did a good job. We talked about it, Ryan. We were trying to get it together, but it was people like Jim that helped shepherd the, you know, the thought process into how to really execute it. And then, of course, to just watch it go down, it was, yeah, it was uh, artful. Yeah, and I'll note that. I think one of the most powerful parts of Springboard is is like Springboard is an event that's hosted once a year, but the the relationships, the conversation, the advice, the help that happens at that table. And I know Jim had a, probably a line across the room trying to get to his table, but those are relationships that live on, and it's a yearly thing, and it's 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 awesome to see. Jim, uh, I'm not sure if you have attended Springboard before or not, but overall, what was your kind of feedback on? the the conference and 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 the event yeah i i thought it was great um you know and I, I i actually haven't attended springboard before um which is shocking i've been working with lane for a while on many of our companies um and um i've, I've known what it what a great event it is um i think if it weren't for COVID, i would have been there a few years sooner than this yep. year but um Lane was talking about, you know, asking me, like, will I be supportive next year? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, I actually think it's one of the best events in franchising. Um, it's an event where CEOs, you know, of franchisors attend. Um, they're not just sending their seconds, right? They're, they're actually showing up. And it's the right mix between really great content. I mean, the content's awesome. Um, but also fun access opportunity to uh, you know continue to network and, and get to meet people. So I, I thought it was really, really well done. Excellent. Well, I think one of the very well done components, Lane mentioned that transacting founder session, uh, a panel that I saw the entire room with notepads out and just really focus And this. It's not normal during a lunch event to have that happen uh, because there's distractions all around, but your session on uh, accelerating growth through third-party capital partners. I'd like to dig into a little bit of that topically. And I know that there's no way we're gonna get an hour of content from a whole panel of folks, but several of the topics that you discussed 
were, were it was just very educational for some of the younger founders in the room and even as like larger regional brands, folks that that have an eye towards what's next. People were really leaning in and taking notes. So I'd like to just first ask kind of in general, if you could just give kind of a cliff notes of of what you discussed during the event. I think, John, one of the questions that he asked is just in general, what is private equity and what are the different types of private equity or growth partners that uh, that a, a brand can work with? If you just want to kind of break that down a little bit and share. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, so I think you know, you hear a lot about, you know, private equity, right? And and things like LBOs and BC. And, you know, if you read the Wall Street Journal, you read any news, it just seems like there's a frenzy of this stuff. And like, what does it actually mean? You know, private equity is really um, a fund structure. When people talk about private equity, they're often referring to a private equity fund. Um, and, um, and also maybe a strategy. So there's the how is an entity structured and a venture fund, a private debt fund, um, a buyout fund, it will often have the exact same structure where we put a fund together. We get commitments typically from institutional investors like our investors, our university endowments, uh, insurance companies, state and local pension plans. Um, they commit capital to us. Um, and then we generally have a 10-year fund. So we have uh, typically about five years to invest the dollars. And then as typically, you know, as much time as we need to then grow businesses and ultimately return that capital back to our investors. Uh, in terms of strategy, um, I think it's a little bit of a continuum. You know, there, there's venture on one end of that continuum where you have institutional investors investing in really high growth potentially earlier stage businesses. Venture funds tend to um, do minority deals. And although they often talk about being very involved post-close, they're generally not. Uh, they're generally investing in 30 or 40 different companies per fund. And, and following portfolio theory thereafter. Right, yes, lots of diversification. Because they'll have, you know, investments actually lose money, right? A lot of their investments will lose money. Um, then you kind of have us in the middle where we're very growth focused, um, but we are control oriented investors where we're typically buying at least 50, if 51% of a business. And, um, but our founders tend to be at that growth stage where they're still, you know, that second bite of the apple for them is going to hopefully be many times larger than the first bite they get with us. Um, but they're really looking for help. You know, in franchising, you don't necessarily need a lot of growth capital. That's one of the great things about the franchise or business model. Uh, the franchisee provides the capital to grow uh, your network. But what our franchisors need, uh, often they want to take some chips off the table um, as part of an investment from Princeton, but they're really looking for that expertise. How do I reliably get three, four, five, six times larger than I am today? and do that in three, four, five, six years. So we're around extraordinary growth. Our uh, portfolio in fund one, which now has uh, 13 franchisors in it, is growing at 100 160% this year. So wow. growing EBITDA 160% this year. Um, that is phenomenal growth. And these were nice sized businesses to begin with. So, um, and then at the other end of the continuum, you know, are really buyout firms and they're largely buying, you know, a hundred percent of a business effectively. They may ask the founder to roll a little bit, but they're generally buying 80 to a hundred percent. And they're generally buying more mature businesses, businesses that have 10, 20, 30, 40 million or more of EBITDA. So different strategies, private equity describing really the fund structure and, uh, you know, more than a strategy. Yeah. And you guys are unique in the sense, like when you opened it up, you just mentioned that you only focus on franchising. And although you do most of the time, the majority of the time, you do the control investments, but you're really looking for, for the businesses where you still have the founders active in the business. And there's the old saying, right? Would you rather have 
a smaller piece of a much bigger pie? Or would you rather keep trucking along and grow instead of at 160% as kind of the average that you gave? It just makes a heck of a lot more sense. And I, I read a press release maybe a month ago, if I'm not mistaken, and I noticed that you guys added on a new chief operating officer and folks that partner with you aren't just getting someone making a passive investment you're able to provide an additional layer of support to help. So if you want to key up or share anything else about the team and some of the experience and maybe some of the way post-transaction, which by the way, is a lot of the feedback that I've heard about you guys just out in the field is that not only while doing the deal, but post-transaction, kind of one of the things you mentioned in the panel was like, go talk to the other folks that we've worked with, but yeah. talk a little bit about that support and how you're able to achieve that growth and help the, those founders take things to the next level and create a bigger pie. Yeah. So I think that's right. I, I think the founders are at a point where um, they want some actual help. They, If they don't really want somebody to help and somebody to actually make a difference, we're probably not the right partner. And one of the reasons, you know, people say, well, why, you know, Jim, why don't you do minority deals? We we rarely do them. And it's it's because in franchising, the founder is so important for us to actually have a seat at the table. We kind of have to have 51% so that founder will actually listen to us. Otherwise, they, they hold all the cards, right? They have all the relationships with all the franchisees. They're driving the culture. They're the visible person. But what we do do post-close is we're very often building a very high-powered team around that founder. You know, often our founders haven't taken a business from five or 10 million of EBITDA to 20, 30, 40. We have a business that will do almost 60 million this year. Um, running a 60 million EBITDA business is very different than running a 5 million EBITDA business. And one of the things we're proud of is how we're able to keep that founder so often in that chair as they're growing. Um, and the way we're able to do that is supporting them with, by often we're hiring the whole team around them. Um, we're really thinking about strategy. We're, we're, we're thinking about, um, we, we have this, uh, we call it our playbook. We have different modules in that playbook. For example, development is a really key module for us. Our typical concepts opening um, about 75 units a year. So that's just extraordinary growth. Yeah. We want to keep that up and we want to every year raise the bar on franchisee selection so that we're increasingly attracting better and better franchisees to our systems. So that's, for example, something we'll jump in and really help the founder with. Um, often our founders aren't in all the broker networks or aren't in the right broker networks. Um, often they're not doing enough organically. So those are all things we've done many, many, many times before and can very quickly put a program in place for the founder. So that's just one example. Very, um, very let, me, let me jump in for a second, Ryan, yep. um, and not to put you on the spot, Jim, but the, so we talked a lot at Springboard about the headwinds, right? That we started, it started with the labor crisis and then it labor crisis had like seven children along the way until we got to Springboard of different uh, things in the parade of horribles, different floats in the parade of horribles as they came down with then, of course, inflation going crazy and then rates going up. Um, maybe you did, but I mean, I don't th I think many of the folks investing in a franchise didn't perhaps see all that coming. Every one of those things is a check minus, if you will, on development, getting 75 units open, getting franchisees approved, dealing with, you know, declining qualifications if people's, you know, own nest egg is, is eroding. Um what? So I guess you can tell me whether you knew it or didn't know it, but sort of like, what's the plan? Like, so is, does everybody know? Is it, are there new strategies around? Are some of these 40 people, you know, working on trying to figure out how to get people still bought on the financing and to be able to open units on schedule? Yeah, I think there is this misconception um, in franchising. And we talked a, a lot about this with our investors um, who have the option to, hey, do I invest in, you know, my fund or do do I invest in, you know, an infrastructure fund or do I invest in a, a tech fund, right? Like there are real mitigants in franchising uh, that can help uh, franchisors hold up in uh, these difficult 
economic times. And if you look at the last financial crisis, franchisor GDP declined about half as much as their overall GDP. So franchisors, just franchising as a business model is a wonderful business model. So directly to your, your question, the, the, the you know, franchisee selection. Well, in a downturn, we, we have a unique financial crisis here where usually in a financial crisis, unemployment goes up. And that's actually really good. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's actually good for a franchisor. Uh, it's easier for our franchisees to find great, talented workers. But in fr at the franchisor level, the pool of potential franchisees often goes up. You read about the, the layoffs at, 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 at Meta and, you know, other big companies, um, you know, Peloton, yeah. right, just laid off a bunch of their workers um, this week. Um, those folks, highly paid, smart, um, often have big 401ks. They often are attracted to franchising in a downturn because they don't want to go restart their career you know, at some other big company. They, they've dreamed of entrepreneurship and franchising, of course, is a great way to have a better return as an entrepreneur than trying to start your own um, your own business. So uh, we, we actually see some mitigants um, there and um, we're um, we're not overly nervous about the overall uh, environment right now. So you think more qualified prospects may have come online um, and have access to their investment pool and their 401k and other things to go do it. That's interesting. Um, the other thing we see is that in downturns, franchisors take share from the mom and pops. Uh, and we saw this during COVID, uh, for, for example, at, at Sola Salon Studios, um, the demand for salon suite was very high during COVID because so many mom and pop salon operators went out of business and just were never going to reopen. You know, the, the franchisors, franchisees tend to do much better than mom and pops in the downturn. And it makes sense because they have a brand, they're supported, they're you know, they have a sophisticated POS system that works real well, right? Like they're, they're, they're getting, um, they have so much more um, support than that mom and pop who's just trying to figure it out on their own. So again, there are these, these great mitigants in our industry that, that um, you know, really cause us to outperform in these, these tougher times. That's interesting. That that's an interesting perspective, and it would explain why franchising is still on a tear. I mean, nobody says there's no money in the economy. In fact, there's too much. It's bidding up the price of all the goods, right? It's not that there aren't people can afford things. If anything, people are over splurging and indulging on luxury products that are making them cost at least a third more. Um, and then I think some things became opportunities. We were talking about uh, auto repair, and like the unintended consequence of the used car market being as it was costing more than a new car market is that it breathes a whole new life into automotive service type businesses because people are trying to keep their cars on the road, fix them to trade them in. But it wasn't, it's not just like what they used to call that cash for junkers or whatever it is. Everybody used to trade their clunkers, whatever it was. Right. Um, so there's, and people were in the right place at the right time. Cause I think there were other times automotive repair was very niche oriented and very like, you know, slivers or silos in that business and a lot of specialization. Then people went to full auto repair and then it was still hard to repair because the cars were all electronic or all batteries are all, you know, now much more difficult. But but then you look at actual performance. And and so those that I'm sure is a good bet for you and, and for others that that went hard into that business. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about Strickland Brothers, which is our quick change oil uh, concept. Um, I think we have about 120 units open. We've got a big uh, development pipeline there, several several hundred in development. Um, and that's a business that's, again, held up really, really well in this environment because people are investing in their, their car more than ever um, because it's just so hard to get a new car. And yeah. a new used car is incredibly expensive. And we actually don't see that trend uh, changing that much. You know, as, as all the... OEMs are switching production over from, um, you know, internal combustion engines to EVs. I think that's going to, you know, the EV prices are high. I think that's going to continue to keep those used car prices very high. And you'll see the average age of the car on the road in America continue to increase. So, Again, a good spot. You're muted, Ryan. 
One one of the things, Lane, one of the threads that you mentioned was basically the mom and pops are the ones that go out of business. At the end of the day, a franchisee is a mom and pop, but they have the brand, they have the support, and there's an extra layer of support on top of that in your portfolio because you have you supporting the brand that's supporting the franchisees. And it's just an amazing thing. Like, could you imagine not as a franchisee, could you imagine not having your franchisor during the pandemic and so quickly rolling out the support and all of the communications that happen? And then you're also able to leverage your knowledge and experience across other sectors and industries. And it's just a very, very powerful thing. I think we all know that. Um, one of the topics that that came up, there's a couple couple of things I want to get into. How to best prepare. If I'm a if I'm a founder listening to this and I'm trending into, you know, the the EBITDA to be able to work with a partner like Princeton, or if I'm looking at other partners, you know, how how do I best prepare myself today for uh, an eventual partnership that may come two years from now? You know, is this too early to be looking? What should I be thinking about? And what are some of the top, I guess, common mistakes that that you see whenever you're consulting with these folks? Because you guys have a very relational approach to how you yeah. approach it. You're not in any massive tear or rush, um, but you can move quickly. But how are you coaching folks as you're having those types of conversations and what should they be looking for, preparing for? So I think uh, a big misconception um, entrepreneurs have about private equity is that all private equity firms are the same. And we don't do ourselves any favor, right? We, we, we all show up in the blue blazers or the, the Patagonia vests, right? We kind of all have the private <laughs> equity, you know, attire. And, um, but at the end of the day, um, we're all actually quite different. And I'd also say the returns that we generate for our investors often are very different as well. And I always say, if you're going to select a private equity investor to partner with, make sure they're actually a good investor. Because if not, their problems are going to become your problems over time. Um, so, you know, one of the things we're really proud of is our track record of, of success over time. And all that success has been pointed on franchising. Um, so I think people think about, you know, th this isn't, roofing, right? This isn't, hey, I know I'm going to need a new roof at some point in the next 25 years. Why don't I start to get to know roofers now, just in case? <laughs> like that, we don't do that, right? Like when you need a new roof, go get the, you know, go get three bits, right? That's not how private equity is. This is such a important decision. It's much more like marriage than anything. You know, we're going to have an intimate relationship with that founder for three to seven, eight, nine, 10 years, potentially, right? It, it, this is very long-term in nature. And a lot of stakeholders, their future is on the line. You've got, you know, franchisees, you have employees, um, you obviously have shareholders. And selecting the right partner is important to all of them, uh, particularly the franchisee. So um, my number one recommendation to an entrepreneur is start the process very early. Um, if you think you're going to sell in two years or need a partner in two years, start two or three or four years in advance. Really get to know. And we, we're willing to do free work. Right? Like We can build the relationship over time, and we love nothing more. Um, D1 training is an example of this. Um, I got to know Will Bartholomew uh, for seven years before the time was right to, to partner. And I don't regret any of that time uh, that we spent getting to know each other. So, um, and during that time, I was always available to help or respond to a question or take a look at a, a proposal for, for something, right? Like you can really prove out that relationship in advance before you actually uh, pull the trigger and, you know, decide to spend the next four to seven years with somebody. Um, Ryan, let me jump in for a minute because I would answer that question just slightly differently in terms of like how folks can get ready. Because I agree with Jim hundred percent. It's the relationship that probably is the most important variable, but in terms of housekeeping and stuff that we see like every day, when you just take a, even a peek, a shallow look, uh, you know, you see people with unprotected trademarks, you see people with, you know, stuff that's lapsed, you see people without proper 
record keeping on their regulatory compliance and that they were registered for the period. You know, people are generally looking back for the statute of limitations. So it may not go back to Fred Flintstone era, but for the foreseeable past, you need to go and make sure that you, if asked, could pull your A file and be able to demonstrate that you gave a timely gave an FDD and that you ultimately were registered and, and all the things that were required of you, if any, before you sold. And the more organized that process is and the more you could just hand it up, scan it up. Some people use outside services. I think Frank Connect has something. I think other people have something um, that tries to organize these things so that when you need it, you just draw from it. Because there's a lot you can read into people's, you know, when you ask for something that should be readily available, and it's like three weeks of of a lot of, a lot of song and dance, right, Jim? Because they just, it's not readily available. And they got to go find it on somebody's notebook that's in somebody's house to quit three years ago. And like, it's, it is it is an amazing treasure hunt of trying to find stuff when you need it. And that all wow. could be avoided if you just had some discipline around your record keeping mostly, but discipline around your process and around who's in it so that you just do it the right way every time instead of dealing the whole, because everybody loses confidence in you when you start with, we're only 13, how many times have you heard that? We're only 25 receipts left and we will be good. Like really, how many did you have to begin with? 75? Like it's, you, you can only find two thirds. It just says something about what your approach and what your culture is about compliance and regulatory compliance and record keeping. And usually if you find somebody who's really diligent about it and has systems, everybody follows it. There's one aberrational thing you got to look for. And but that's the culture of the company. It's one of compliance and it's one of doing things by the book and not, you know, not doing all these verbal agreements on the side and not trying to, you know, not essentially get everything down. I mean, because you get these reps and warranties the way, you know, Jim will write them. It's that every single franchise relationship is expressed in a written document. Well, that, why is that? that? That is not astounding. That is exactly what you'd expect. But you cannot not imagine the uh, lower GI tract changes that go on to the person that is like, well, you know, I don't know. Is this important? You know, my roommate from college, you know, has, you know, operates three trucks, which we don't, you know, like just dumb stuff right. here come up. So it's and it does come up. In a in a rec, you know re replicative kind of way, and it goes from brand and brand. These founder-run brands get their arms around growth and development, and like you said, running a three million or four million or five million dollar company that probably with the existing staff it has somebody's hands full. Um, but you know th that kind of those kinds of things that people find almost immediately, or you know, not to plug lawyers, but you know, lawyers sometimes can you know, can bring a lot of order to this and they bring a lot of confidence yeah. to the deals to know that somebody who does a lot of this is on the other side and you can have a high degree of confidence in their representations about the record keeping or the diligence or the issuance of the FDDs being accurate and those kind of things versus, you know, the cheapest person you can find, which is yeah. always the alternative and, and maybe the, the first choice among, you know, budding entrepreneurs that are trying to you know, put food on the table, but it, it's, you know, yeah, it it's only the matters. cliche, the, the difference between price and what that costs you. <laughs> well, and that's, that's it. I mean, you know, it's even such things as an S election or like just things that should be in your accounting files and things that you, you know, need to be able to put your finger on because that matters to these folks when they buy it, the pass through nature of these entities, uh, you wouldn't as an entrepreneur ever imagine is as important as it is. And what kind of machinations you have to go through ahead of time to make sure that that it's still the form that you think it is. So, um, you know, that may be working with folks who have done these deals before and, 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 you know, investment bankers are great and they're really helpful to the deal, but their job is to get the deal done, right? They're not necessarily looking to you get every dot, every uh, T crossed and I dotted. They're looking to get the document across the finish line. So it's important that you have your own able-bodied representation that, is thinking about you, your your rollover opportunities, your investment, to, your opportunities to co-invest with uh, your new partner, your employment agreement, and what what that might say or not say, and and you know those things become solely important to you as the entrepreneur. And and the best advised clients usually make the best decisions. I I'm never sad to see somebody have a really good lawyer on the other side because it means that they know what they're getting into, and it's not somebody that you're going to then explain what you're looking to you know, get in an estoppel certificate if they've been writing them for these deals and, you know, they're just have experience. It's always experience, expertise, and results that <laughs> distinguish suppliers. I couldn't agree with Lane more. The, you know, it seems like it, it's weird for us to say this to a, a potential founder partner, but we always say, get a really good attorney to advise you 
somebody like Lane, who's done many, many M&A deals where it's like not just it's not like some trust attorney that um, might have done an M&A deal five years ago. Like if, if, when we see that, we literally will not move forward with the deal until the wow. founder selects a really talented M&A attorney. And, you know, bankers can be helpful, um, but not most candidly, most sellers don't engage a banker. But every seller needs to engage a really high quality M&A attorney because that ultimately, even if you have a banker involved, it's the M&A attorney that is really the one looking out for the founder's interest. Uh, the banker often has their own <laughs> their own interests, and it's a little bit like that real estate agent, right? He just kind of wants to sell the house, right, to get the commission. Uh, many bankers are really good. Uh, many bankers want their commission, so... Yeah, their hearts in the right place, but they're not. That's not their job to protect not their the job. seller into the right. deal. The seller's got to make sure that he or she lands in the place that is, you know, and they're not sitting in the dark. It's all eyes wide open. These are all contracts that are in writing and written, and you may have one minute to look at it. And so, you know, they, when these deals get, they get a heartbeat, and then they get a cadence that is moves that are, you know, what is it that you know, speed helps deals or, you know, but I think they get a cadence, they get rolling and a lot of things come at you really quickly. And it's important to have them mm -hmm. be able to, to, to consider them and to make some decision quickly because everyone will be pressuring you too. And you're already, and you're already, you know, Jim, once you as a founder are a month into a deal, you're so invested from a transaction cost wow. standpoint that you don't really have the option of saying, you know, nah, nah, I don't like my employment contract. I'm going to walk, right? You're going to owe everybody lots of money. You're going to have lots of issues at that moment. So it's not yeah. the moment to be considering those things. And I also think that in addition to the paid people that help, there's been a lot of people through these transactions now. We saw that at Springboard. Mm -hmm. and a lot of founders are willing to talk to folks. And like, I always say to everything else. You need a mentor through this that's done it. It's like everything David Barr's whole presentation, right? You need people that have done this before, whatever you seek to do. And they're the ones that are going to give you the best advice. And I think just like everything else, franchising, those folks are, are couldn't be more helpful and, and willing to help, you know, coach people through what these transactions look like, what the back end looks like, maybe what to look at for, what not to look for, or how, more importantly, how to qualitatively evaluate a partner. Because, you know, it's like, <laughs> they all are in the same sport jacket. They all have an amazing, you know, uh, educational pedigree and they all, you know, have most of them have some sort of track record. And so they become, if that's your only look, they've become indiscernible at that point. But we definitely know that there's a difference. And, yeah. um, and if you're the founder going to keep running it, that's different than selling out the whole thing when you're really just, you know, taking your, all your chips off the table and leaving. If you're going to be working for somebody, a lot of these founders never had a boss in their lives, Jim, right? I mean, right. They, a lot of them have been self-employed certainly for their franchise past, but maybe even forever. Um, and so I think it's, um, eyes wide open as you go do those deals. And I think that as you show them how to take their EBITDA and have it go through, is it meiosis or mitosis where it goes into right in a, in a higher and higher proportion. But I think that that's really the telling side of it. And, and I don't know, Jim, if there's any like, how do you get a company? What is it just having like great foresight and picking the companies or knowing something nobody else knows? Or is it really, are there attributes that you bring sort of to bear at the same time that allows folks to get from that? Is it these people that you described that I think earlier in terms of adding more staff and building more infrastructure, but is that as sort of programmed as it seems? You know, I wish I could say it's super, my job is so hard. No one else could do it. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> we kind of broken it down a little formulaically. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. It comes down to the, the four walls, uh, whether it's a physical location or whether it's um, a, a virtual location that somebody's running uh, like a home services business. But um, if, if the, if it's a good deal for the franchisee, it's going to be a really good deal for the franchisor. So we spend all of our time and diligence on validation, just like a franchisee would buying into a concept, right? What do we do? We talk to franchisees. We ask them, uh, one of the things we get, which, uh, you know, a, a franchise, a franchisee has to rely on, and you know, the FDD. Um, but we actually, we get a lot more financial information. So we see unit health. We see how units ramp over time. Uh, we have a perspective on how quickly a franchisee breaks even, how quickly do they actually get their money back? I think one thing we're really focused on is, um, 
what is the annual free cash flow yield on a franchisee's investment to get into a concept? Um, and um, we love things where um, you can have a 50% or some of our concepts have 100% or more annual free cash flow yield. Um, so if you have that in place and you have a, a, a franchisor that has gotten 100, uh, 500, you know, 50, 100, 150 locations open, we can look at the data. We, we, we see that these are now obviously in franchising, not every, every location is going to be a wild success. There's going to be um, some, some great operators, some operators that need more support. Um, but we have a sense for what that looks like. And then it's a matter of how do we do more? How do we codify what's working? How do we put systems and processes in place so that we can bring up the folks that need more support? But it has to start with a four-wall um, deal for a franchisee that makes makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Okay. Very well said. Um, gentlemen, I think that we could go on for another hour, but Jim, <laughs> I know that you're busy. You have some board meetings and some things to pop into. I think the very last topic, and we'd love to have you share how folks can get in contact with your team or or with with yourself. I know that you're certainly going to get some folks reach out um, as we have a very awesome audience here on Modern Business. We already kind of dove into it. One of the spirited conversations on the panel was like a higher investment banker or not higher investment banker. And if you just want to add a, a kind of a a bookmark to that conversation, maybe briefly discuss kind of the role of an investment banker and uh, you know what what your general advice is. Yeah, so I think there are some great investment bankers out there, um, and um, but I, I, I what I find is that many founders don't hire an investment banker, um, and they're all pretty. They're often very generally happy with what happens. So I, I think it's a little bit case by case as to whether it makes sense. You know, if you're if you're large, you know, you're 20 million of EBITDA, you can attract a really high quality big name investment banker and you're going to sell 100%. That's very different than if you're 1 million of EBITDA and you're really not looking to sell 100%. You're really looking to get one or two or three to 10 or 20 and the quality of the partner is going to really be the deciding factor more than anything else, then an investment banker may or may not be particularly helpful. You may or may not be able to attract a high quality one. So I think whether you do it or you don't, you need a high quality M&A attorney. Uh, there's one right here on the screen. Um, uh, you have to build a relationship with that attorney and you have to build a relationship with your prospective partner. Uh, Validate your, your partner, uh, check references, ask tough questions. Um, we're in the business of spending a lot of time with founders and we're happy to answer any question a founder has. We're happy to put them in touch with any person we've ever done business with. So do that homework and really make sure you're comfortable with that partner. I think that's more important than how you attract the partner in the first place. Um, Ryan, I mean, I, I will say that I generally agree with Jim. I, I am aware there are some uh, particular transactions where I think investment bankers got more money than I think was originally going around. There's certainly some stories where they brought a higher value because they had connections. But I think it's the quality of the deal and the and the and the franchisor and how the what feeding frenzy exists already. <laughs> In many cases, I know most. Private equity firms, certainly the ones I'm aware of, would prefer a deal that they find themselves that mainly because you invest almost hundreds, not almost hundreds of thousands of dollars in transaction costs in only to have your deal then run up the flagpole for a, a higher bidder. And it is very dissatisfying as an emotional state to have to just eat all those costs when somebody uses relies on your due diligence and your evaluation process, but didn't incur those expenses that can then you know, come in and do it. So I think it's a rational reasons why folks prefer it one way or another. Um, and I think as the valuations have gone up, I think private equity firms and platform companies have raised the bar on what they're willing to pay in order for that that exclusivity. And I think that's uh, the law of supply and demand has sort of moved that around. But, um, but uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. yeah, I would say even where we don't see a banker involved, the founders already created... Um, 
you know, a process. There's some amount of competition. They have multiple term sheets. Um, franchising is a very attractive category. They're high quality investors that are interested in these businesses. So um, if you know that you're going to stick around and you have, you know, four or five term sheets and they're all roughly in the same ballpark and you're selling 50%, um, like getting an extra 5% on your purchase price is actually only an extra two and a half percent of value, right? Because you're rolling the rest and the second bite of the apple is going to be a lot more important than the first. So it is case by case, no matter what, you have to do your homework on your potential partner. I think that is the key. Well, very well said, uh, Jim. We appreciate your time. And Lane, it was also awesome to have you on yeah. the podcast. I cannot believe we haven't had you before. Um, Jim, how do folks get in contact with your team? They want to start to get to know you guys. PrincetonEquity.com. You can see the whole team there. We have our email addresses, LinkedIn. We're all on LinkedIn. So we we love when founders reach out to us. That That is we, we we respond to every single uh, inbound from a founder. So we're eager to have those conversations. Well, that's part of why Jim is so likable. I mean, I think that people can get an audience with him. And I think that was what was such a cool aspect of Springboard was that, that and, and he, you were on the ground the whole time, like you were available and visible and talking and schmoozing and, and really getting to know people personally, not delegating that, showing sort of what a high value you put on that. Um, but I just think that's why I approached you on, on programming and everything else, because you're just very normal and very down to earth and very easy to talk to and 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 a good explainer, as my wife says, in terms of what's, you know, explaining something I think that's highly complex. But um, this is what the value you brought the springboard onto this and, and our continued sort of working together is really, very, we're very grateful and very much appreciate you. Well, Lane, you made it so easy to be there the whole time. Uh, <laughs> really a lot of fun, so... We yeah. <laughs> well, I will give the last charge to the audience. Be sure that you like and subscribe. And if if you're you listen to this episode and you have a friend in mind that may want to be a franchise operator owner, share them this podcast. Jim has a whole portfolio of amazing opportunities. You can get the support and, and guidance from them as an operator and also founders of brands reach out to Jim as well. But be sure that you're subscribed and thank you guys for listening and watching because this is on video. Uh, but thank you guys as always. Uh, thanks, thanks Jim. Thanks, Lane. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, I appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.